Welcome and thank you for joining us. At Worship Harvest, we believe that we are a movement of the gospel, discipleship, and mission. And we are committed to catalyzing spiritual, social, and economic renewal in our immediate communities. And as a result, the world. Here is this week's teaching. Good morning, Proclaim! How are you? It is an honor and a privilege to be back with you again this year. You all look so fine. Please remain standing while I celebrate the anointed woman of God who I get to call my wife. My better half is here with me, Pastor Teleria. Please remain standing while I celebrate the mother and father of the home, Apostle and Reverend. Thank you so much for the honor and the privilege to be here. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your leadership. We are grateful. And because we're friends, and please remain standing also, I need to ask your forgiveness. Actually, let me just come and do it well. Musumba. Masumba. <laughs> Whatever I've done to offend you, please forgive me. For some reason, he's put me between himself and Reverend Victor. And I have to be in the middle of these two spiritual giants. They're, they're not even giants, titans, spiritual titans. On one side, we have a Ugandan titan. On the other side, a Nigerian titan. And in the middle is me. Aish! 50 years from now, my grandchildren will be studying to become global leaders. They'll be at Bible College someplace. And they'll be looking at and reading church movements, global church movements. And they'll come to me and they'll say, Grandpa, Apostle Moses Mukisa, Uganda. Grandpa! Reverend Victor Adiemi, Nigeria. Look at these men. I'll pull out my phone and I'll slip it across the table. I'll say, proclaim 2023. And my grandchildren, they'll, they'll, they'll try and get it to be bigger. They'll magnify the phone. They'll look. Nah, that's not you. Please take your seats. Uh, it is an honor to be here. I am very grateful. As was mentioned, I represent New Thing. We are a global organization aligned around mission. And so we catalyze church planting movements. That's what we exist for. That's what makes our heart beat fast. That's the role that I get to work in as this current season as the global operations director, the G.O.D. of New Thing. And so I oversee our different regions and help them with their systems and structures to coach churches like yourself, to equip you, to empower you, so that you can be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that plants churches. And so today we're going to get into a little bit about that, but let me start with, before I get into that, I am American by birth, but I claim my Kenyan identity. If... 
if people in my country can claim what gender they want, then certainly I can claim what citizenship I want. So I identify proudly as an African man. Plus, in, in 80 years, half the world will be African, so I have to be nice to you, so you'll be nice to me. Well, let me start by asking you a question. And it's a question I want to keep coming back to during our time together. And that question is, what is God's desire for the church? What is God's desire for the church? In other words, why does the church exist? For what reason is there a church? Pastors, it's hard work being a pastor. We labor, we toil. For what purpose? To what end? For what reason do we labor and do we toil? Because many of us say, well, God called me to be a pastor. But we have to be careful about what that means because God didn't call us to tasks. He called us to purpose. God doesn't call us to a task. He calls us to a purpose. So when you became a Christian, when you stepped into your pastoral gifting, your apostolic gifting, your evangelistic gifting, what did he call you to? It wasn't to tasks. It was to an end result. What is it? Most of us haven't answered this question rightly, which is why we see the results we're seeing, because we don't know where we're going. There's no vision for the work. And it's vision that motivates, it's vision that keeps us waking up excited about what we do to where we don't have to take vacation for 38 years, as Apostle was telling us. Because all we can think about is the joy and the excitement of the purpose God has called us to. Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision, the people perish. In the message translation, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves, but when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Many of us are great at being busy for Jesus, but have no idea what our purpose from Jesus is. God wants to reveal his vision, because without it, there's no passion, there's no motivation, and what was supposed to be a powerful and mighty church has become weak and ineffective, because we don't know why we exist, we're just busy toiling. We put the what and the how in front of the why. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Well, if you don't know why you exist, it doesn't really matter what you do or how you do it. It's of no consequence. We're just spinning our wheels without actually gaining any ground. We have to start with why do we exist? Once we know why we exist, the what and the how become very clear and very evident. The church that you pastor, the church that you will pastor, is not the starting point or the ending point. It is the vehicle that God created to achieve the mission. So when you plant a church, you haven't said, oh, I've arrived. Because the church does not start or end anything. It simply is the vehicle that God created to achieve his mission. And we only have one mission because we only have one church. I don't care what the denomination you claim, I don't care what name you claim, there is one church and it is the church of Jesus Christ. So whatever your mandate, whatever your vision is, whatever your mandate is, that's great, but there's only one mission because we serve one God, same spirit, same baptism, same blood, same father, same family, one church. 
but if we don't know what the mission is, we're wasting our time. As an organization, we try and make things simple. We try and make things super simple because if they're simple, they're reproducible. If I can remember it, then I can do it, but I have to understand it before I can remember it. So when you teach, when you're talking about multiplication, it has to be simple enough to be understood. Once it's understood, it can be remembered. Once it's remembered, it can be acted upon. Once it's acted upon, it can be taught to somebody else. So we define the mission as the three R's. The mission of God, very simply, is reaching the lost. Evangelism. The whole book of, or the whole chapter of Luke 15 is about reaching the lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. The second R is restoring God's dream for creation. Restoring God's dream for creation. When God created heaven and earth, he said it was good. He said it was very good. He said, yes, this is, this is the vision I had in mind. And then sin came and ruined everything. But God's initial dream is still there and the church is supposed to redeem that dream. We are supposed to restore his dream. The world is broken and we can't let it stay that way. The third part of the mission as we describe it, as we define it, is reproduce. Reproduce the mission in others. So we reach the lost through evangelism. We restore God's dream through social impact and then we reproduce the mission both in individual disciples but also in churches. Matthew 28, 19, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. 2 Timothy 2, 2, now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. So the church exists to accomplish the mission which has reached the lost, restore God's dream, and reproduce the mission in others. So let me ask you again, what is God's desire for the church? It's to accomplish the mission. But these are still tasks. This isn't a vision. These are still tasks. We can do these things. These are actions. So what then is the result? If we reach and we restore and we reproduce, what are we hoping to achieve? What are we hoping to accomplish? Where is it that we're working towards? Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven heaven. Normally we skip down to the later verses of the Lord's Prayer, but he leads with these for a reason because your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. He doesn't say wait till we get to come to his kingdom. He says your kingdom come. Your will done on heaven. Think about heaven just for a second. The perfection the absolute perfection. God's will is done without question. He is worshipped constantly. There is no sin. There is no corruption. There is no poverty. There is no sickness. There is no addiction. That perfection of heaven is supposed to be coming here to earth and it is our job as the only ones that cross two worlds to bring it here. Because we are physical and we are spiritual. We are seated at the right hand of the Father and we are here. It is our job to bring heaven to earth. That's why we're reaching the lost, to bring them into the family so that they can help us restore God's dream as we reproduce the mission in them. 
That's the reason we're reaching the lost. To bring them into the family so they can be discipled and reproduce the mission elsewhere as we restore God's dream and bring the perfection of heaven down to our broken earth. That's the vision. That's the purpose. That's the end result. We are bringing heaven to earth, which means your salvations, your baptisms, your new churches, they mean nothing if they're only numbers. If it's only numbers that you report, it means nothing. You can have a billion members, but if they're not making heaven on earth, it doesn't matter. You can plant a million churches, but if they're not transforming earth into heaven, it doesn't matter. Because it's not just reaching and reproducing, but it's restoring. The end result is heaven on earth. The end result is pushing back the darkness. The end result is taking ground from the enemy where he currently has it so that we can claim that ground. And that only happens as we reach more people and reproduce the mission in them. And it's not just for your location. It's not just for your community. It's not just for your nation. This is the dream of all of the church worldwide. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. All of the earth, not just Chira, not just Ntinda. Those are the easiest Uganda names I know. The other ones, Makarere, Bwagerere, all the... Hey. There's too many ereres for my American tongue. All of the earth. All of the earth. Every corner of the earth. What is God's desire for the church? What is God's desire for his church? So what do we know at this point in time? We know the role of the church to accomplish the mission. We know the mission is reaching, restoring, and reproducing, and we know ultimately the end result is heaven on earth. Let's shift a little bit now. I'm also going to throw some statistics and a little bit of math at you this morning. Over the last 100 years, the percentage of Christians on planet earth has decreased. From 1910 to 2010, the percentage of Christians on planet Earth reduced by 3%. We went from 34.8 Christians in 1910 to 31.7 Christians in 2010. A 3% decrease. Yet the population is rapidly increasing. Rapidly. And Christianity is slowly decreasing. And the population here in Africa is increasing faster than any other continent. And in fact, it's the only continent that is still increasing. 
every 30 years from now on, the African population is going to double, if not triple. Approximately every day, 385 babies are born into this world. 385,000 babies. 385,000 babies. Every day. That means 140 million babies every year. 140 million babies every year. That's like three Ugandas being birthed every year. Which means 266 children per minute and five children every second. Five babies, five babies, five babies, five babies, five babies. We just added 50 people to the world. And we're busy here talking to each other. That means in order to keep pace, in order to keep pace and just keep 31% of the population, we have a long ways to go. But to keep pace with the growth, it means five salvations every second, 266 salvations every minute, and 385 salvations, 1,000 salvations every day to keep the pace of the growth of the population. And that doesn't include the deficit of 70% we're already living with. There's 5.6 billion people right now who don't know Jesus, let alone the 140 that will be born this year. 140 million will be born not knowing Christ. There's 5.6 billion right now not knowing Jesus. We're playing catch up. We're not ahead despite what the statistics in Uganda and Kenya and most of Africa tell you. We are not ahead in the global race for Christianity. We are playing catch up. And most of us aren't even playing. We're playing in our sandbox and not compared and not worried about the rest of the world. Do you know the best way to reach the unsaved? Do you know the best way to reach people who don't know Jesus? The best tool for reaching people who are far from Jesus is church planting. 60 to 80% of people who attend a new church were not attending another church elsewhere. At least two-thirds of people who come to a new church were not attending a church elsewhere. Do you know why that is? Because new churches have to evangelize. You have no people. You are forced to pray and to evangelize just so you have someone other than your wife and children listening to you preach on Sunday. After you usher them in, after you worship to them, after you preach to them, it's just you and your family. You go home. Unless you evangelize. So new churches see many more salvations than churches that are 10 years old or more. Because pastors who are churches of 10 years or more have people to listen to them, have enough money to pay the bills. We get comfortable. Why do I need to go and do that work? They'll go and do it, but I'm not teaching them to do it, but I'll assume they're going to do it anyway, even though they won't. And when you get to a certain age and you get to a certain size, you're no longer getting new converts. You're just bringing people from other churches into your space. New churches forces us to evangelize. So with those statistics and with the understanding that new churches bring in the unsaved better than older churches 
Who wants to plant a church? Ish, Apostle, we have work to do. I guess I should have mentioned at the beginning that I don't believe in church planting. Sorry. Those with your hands up, that was the wrong response. I don't believe in church planting. I don't. I don't. I shouldn't see a single hand up. Because if all of us, if there's a thousand people here and all of us plant one church and each of those one churches grow to 500 people, it's only 500,000 people. That's a day and a third of the babies that are being born. 385,000 plus a third of that is about 500,000. If we all plant one church and they grow to 500, which is a good size, it's 1.3 days that we've covered. A thousand churches at 500 people is a drop in the ocean. It's nothing. It's just as Apostle Mose has said, a thousand movements with a thousand churches, with a thousand people each have one billion. Now we're talking. Now we're making ground. And that's just in this room. Imagine the room like this in Kenya, a room like this in Nigeria, a room like this in, in uh, UK, a room like this in China, a room like this in Algeria, a room like this in Argentina. We would cover the world in days. If we understood what the mission and purpose of the church was, movement would be the easy next step. That's why you always hear me preaching about mission. Every time I speak, you're going to hear me talk about the mission. Because if we don't get the mission, movement never makes sense. But once the mission is clear, the only logical next step is movement. The only logical next step is movement. And why would you want to plant one church when God said, multiply, fill the earth? Why would you want to plant one church when he said, all the people of the earth will be blessed because of you? Why would you want to plant one church when he said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of my glory? Why would you want to plant one church when he said, ask me for the nations? Why would you want to plant one church when he said, I'll be with you to the ends of the earth? Why would you want to stay where you are when he promised he's going to be with you when you get there? Why do you want to plant one church? If you take anything away from our time here, especially with this session, no longer dream about planting a church. I don't want a single person to come up and tell me I'm going to plant a church. I'll smack you. I'm not an elder in this community yet, but we'll see what happens if you tell me that you want to plant one church. Because it doesn't make sense based on the mission. It's nonsensical. Movement is not just a good idea, it is God's idea and it is God's design for the church. And because of the Spirit in us, every one of us has movement DNA in us. Jesus started a movement. That same spirit is in us. So I don't care who you are, what you do, what your vocation or calling is, you have a movement in you. You are a movement. That is your inheritance in the future as Apostle was, uh, was preaching about this weekend. 
You think whatever your parents have for you is your inheritance. You have an inheritance in the future that God has promised you that is a movement of salvations and disciples and churches. Globally. Because that's the only thing that's going to work for us to get to that point. So then we have to ask, okay, what's a movement? We have many definitions of movement, many people who think this is a movement, this is a movement, this is a movement. You haven't planted a church in 10 years, but we have a movement. You haven't seen a salvation in two years, but we have a movement. We get a lot of funny definitions for movement. We've gathered 20 churches in this city, we're a movement. How we define movement is missional disciples, with reproducing leaders and multiplying groups and churches. So you have missional disciples, individuals who are on mission. Reproducing leaders who multiply groups and churches. So you have individuals that are on mission. You have leaders who are multiplying or reproducing themselves and you have groups and churches that are multiplying. Then you have a missional multiplying movement because it has to both be missional and multiplying. So when you have those components, you have the making of a movement. But now there's a few things an apostle, he, he alluded to them and I'm gonna cover four basic other components of a movement. The first one is there needs to be generations of disciples and churches. Can I have four people, please? Any four people will do. Just four. Hey, Bana. So, Pastor Io, Izo, let's go this way. Izo, come on this side. Pastor Izo is a good friend of mine. So, let's say that he is. Actually, you should be my disciple. I should be your disciple. So, he's the leader. I'm his first disciple. I am generation one, he's generation zero. I'm generation one. Pastor Flo is generation two. She's become my disciple. So he sent me out to plant a church. I've sent her out to plant a church. Who sent him out to plant a church. Who sent him out to plant a church. That's four generations. Zero, one, two, three, four. Four generations. That's not yet a movement. That's just four generations. Now, Pastor Flo has four generations of church planting herself. So she is one strand of four generations. He's one strand of four generations. He's one strand of four generations. I am one strand of four generations. Now you're starting to talk movement. We would have four, 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 and four. So it started with generation zero. There were four generations of his children, and his children each had four generations of children. Are we together? Thank you. So when you have four generations, each with four strands of families, you're beginning to get to the place where movement is happening. That's the first. Generations are movemental. Saturation is the second one. So you have generations and you have saturation. If people aren't coming to Christ, you don't have a movement. At least not a Christian godly movement. If salvations are not happening, you're just moving people around and calling them Christians and calling yourself a movement. 
in missiological circles, in circles of people who talk about mission, they say at least 5% of a population comes to faith, now you're beginning to talk movement. That can be a people group, maybe a tribe. It could be an area, maybe the surrounding area. 5%. When you see 5% of salvation in a given area, in a given demographic, in a given people group, you're beginning to get to movement. 5%. So there's generations of disciples and churches. There's saturation of the gospel where you're seeing a large number of people in a community or a people or a place or a demographic come to faith. And then there's transformation. One of the things I love about coming to Worship Harvest is always hearing the stories of transformation from their missional communities. They're doing it. When you have movement, people and places will be different. You will have the people that have changed and you will have the systems and the structures that are being changed in that community. Things are changing. Heaven is coming to earth. So movements have generations, they have saturation of the gospel, and they have transformation. The last one is acceleration. Acceleration. All of this will happen in a short amount of time. If in a hundred years you've only planted ten churches, each of them with ten people, and you've only had one salvation, that's not a movement. But if you have four strands of four generations, and you've seen five percent of people come to faith, and things are happening, and you've done it in five years, or four years, or three years, now you have movement. If it's not happening like wildfire, you haven't yet got to movement. Because movements devour everything in their path, just like fire does. You can't control it. You can't contain it. At best, you can hope to direct it. At best. Movement is chaotic because it's no longer about you. It's just the Spirit doing the Spirit's thing, and the wind is blowing where He pleases. If you can control the outcome, it is still in your power, and it is not a godly movement yet. Once you feel like this thing's out of control, now you're on the right track. Generations, saturation, transformation, acceleration. Now, as an organization, we, we use four values. We call them the four, R, the four R's, letter R. And we use them because it's not an all-inclusive, exhaustive list, but we use them because we've seen them in every movement we've ever looked at. Now, there are other things, but these are four we see that we use to bring us together as an organization globally. In every movement, we see relationships. Relationships is the strength of your movement. And it happens in two ways. It's both our relationships inside the community of church, and it's our relationships outside the community of church. The more communal, the more family, the more fun you have inside the church, the stronger your movement will be because the more honor and the more trust. If you're dysfunctional and never meeting inside the church, you're going to have dysfunction because you're not connected. There's no loyalty. There's no honor. There's no trust because you're never together. You can only build relationship by being together. So the strength of your internal church will determine the velocity and the length of your movement. The strength will determine the velocity and the legacy or the longevity of your movement. 
And additionally, if you're not connected to people who don't know Jesus, pastors, who am I talking to? If you're not connected to people who don't know Jesus, pastors, who am I talking to? Pastors, how many of you have been saved so long you don't know anybody that's not saved? How many of you have been in church so long the only community you know profess Christ? If you're not connected to people outside of the church, you can never get someone saved to come inside of the church to be a part of your movement. It's not possible. Because if they know Jesus, they won't confess Jesus. Or they might again, but they're saved. It doesn't make any difference. So the strength of your movement will be determined both internally how well connected you are, but also externally how well connected you are to people who don't know Christ. And let me tell you a secret. People who don't know Jesus, they're not hiding. They're not hiding from you. They're not worried about the Christian that might come up the hill and open the door at any point in time. They're in the bars, they're in the clubs, they're in the casinos, they're the people that you work with, they're the people in your family, they're the people you go to work with, or the people that you go into work with. Those who are in the, on the boda with you, the boda driver, the person at the bank. They're not hiding from you someplace worrying about you coming to tell them about Jesus. They don't care. So relationships, internally, how well connected you are, the community that you build as a family. And then how well connected you are to people who don't know Jesus will be the strength of your movement. I don't know if you've ever hung out with Worship Harvest, but that's one of the reasons why they're moving the way that they are, because they have a beautiful, awesome community in and out. Their missional communities connect them to people who don't know Christ. And they have more fun than anybody I've ever seen on mission. Number two, reproducing is the second value. Reproducing. This is the practice of a movement. If you want to be a movement, you have to practice reproducing and not just at home with babies. Keep doing that too. Don't stop that. We know we're very good at that in Africa. But we have to reproduce at every level. Individuals, groups, churches, networks, and movements. Every level needs to be reproducing. Because let's say you're just planting churches, and I've seen this happen. There's an apostolic grace on a church and they just send out leaders and they plant many churches and then one day they look around and they realize we don't have any leaders left to send because they weren't reproducing disciples. So they sent all of their best leaders and then realized they have nobody else to take those positions and to send out later because all the leaders are gone but they weren't actually making disciples. Or you have somebody at a church that's very good at getting people saved and you have a lot of disciples, you have a thousand disciples, but now you have a thousand disgruntled sons and daughters who you're not sending out to plant churches. Because you're only reproducing disciples, but you're not planting churches. That's like having 30 children and not allowing any of them to leave to have families of their own. It doesn't make sense. So unless you reproduce at every level disciples, the individuals, groups, churches, networks, and movements, you'll never become a movement. That's reproducing. Number three, raising leaders or residency, but raising leaders is easier. This is the life of a movement. If you don't have leadership development happening at every stage of your ministry and mission, you'll never be a movement. It is the life of a movement. If you drain the blood from the body, the body is dead. If you take leaders out of a movement, the movement is dead. 
So at every stage, you're developing leaders to lead people at different levels, the tens, the fifties, the hundreds, the thousands. Because you need different skills at each level of leadership. At initial level of leadership, lead yourself. If you can't lead yourself, I'm not going to let you lead three people. Leadership development starts with managing self. From there, can you manage a team or a small group or a missional community? If you can't do that, I'm never going to let you oversee five missional communities and leave a location. That doesn't make any sense. And if you can't manage and oversee and multiply one location, why would I let you oversee a network of churches? You're learning as you develop as a leader. That process is continual and constant and important to continue to multiply. The last one is resources. Resources is the support of a movement. The support of a movement. I don't care how gifted your team is or how gifted your lead pastor is, you are lacking something. There's something that you lack, whether it's the spiritual capital, the cognitive capital, the relational capital, you're going to realize once your movement starts that there's something that's not quite here. That's where a resource comes in. Apostle Mose talks about Andrew Womack, Mike Breen, 3DM, New Thing, Bishop Dagg. At every level, he realized there's something that's just not here. And whether he realized it or not, as he prayed about it, that resource came to him and allowed them to become a movement because there was a gap that was keeping them from the next phase. And that resource supported the gap, it plugged the hole, and allowed them to continue. There are resources you don't have that you can't get without other people in the church community to help you move to the next level. Relationships, reproducing, raising leaders, resources. So if you're following with me, we started with mission, isn't it? What's the mission? Mission takes us to movement. That's the direct correlation. If you understand the mission, you're going to understand the movement. Now when we're having movements and we're working on movements, there's one more step, and it's meaningful engagement. Meaningful engagement. Said another way, when we come to faith, we learn about the heart of the Father. We know God and we love God. It starts with our heart. Once we know God, we learn to understand God's mission, and it goes to our head. So from the heart, the initial love of God, to understanding his mission, from understanding his mission, it goes to the hands with the movement practices. From heart to head to acting out in obedience the things that we love and the Father loves, the things that the Father has asked us to do, the mission. Now we go to hands, which is the practicing of the movement, the mission that we're trying to accomplish. And from there, it goes back to the Father's heart because when we practice the movement, we have to love his people. From the heart of the Father to understand his mission, to the practices of movement, to the heart of the Father as we love the people that don't yet love him. As we love the lost. From heart back to heart. From the love of God to the love of his people, even those who are still his enemies. Let me tell you something um, that I think we get confused Abraham was not told that he will convert the world. He was told he will bless the world. Isn't it? Unless you have a translation that can prove me wrong, I'm open to hearing it. I don't know all things. I know some things. 
But God said, you will bless the world. Through you, I will bless the nations. He didn't say, through you, I will convert the nations. And there's a difference between those two words. Conversion is coercion. When we convert somebody, when we sit down with them and tell them, I'm not leaving until you say yes to Jesus, that's coerting, coercion. It's manipulating them to Christ. When we give them no other option, it is no longer free will. It is our will imposed on them. That's converting everybody to our way of thinking and believing. But blessing is love. When we bless them, we bless them for the blessing's sake, not for what they're going to give to us. Not for them becoming another number of salvation we can count on Sunday. When we bless them, it doesn't matter their response because we are blessing them. Do you see the difference? Blessing is love. That's why it comes back to the heart with our meaningful engagement. We're not coercing people. We're not manipulating people to the faith. We're blessing them as if we were the Father God ourselves and we want the best for them. There's a big difference between the two. We've actually misunderstood the golden rule. Who knows the golden rule? Treat other people as you would want to be treated, right? Treat them as you would want to be treated. We've misunderstood that completely. Because the way that I want to be treated is not the way that my wife wants to be treated. Those of you who are married, you understand, yes? I want my wife to serve me day and night. I want to be served. I want to sit on my throne and have tea and have chapati and have my feet cleaned and the house cleaned. I want to be served. And while she's at it, she can affirm me and that's okay too. So in my own mind, I'm thinking, I want to be served. So my wife must love to be served. So let me do the dishes. Let me make the bed. Let me clean the house. And I'm sitting and she's feeling nothing. Are you seeing me doing these things? Have you not noticed my efforts at loving you? There's no appreciation because the way that I receive love is not the way that she receives love. So I'm not going to treat her the way that I want to be treated because our marriage will never work. Do you know what I would want? If you don't know me, the way I would want you to treat me is to get to know me and then serve my needs. So I'm going to treat others the way they want to be treated. Which means I'm going to learn, I'm going to ask their good questions, I'm going to get to know what are their needs, what are their wounds, what are their wants, what are their desires. And once I've learned them, then I bless them. And I serve them. Or I give them gifts whatever it is that may be their needs and their love languages. So treat others as they would want to be treated. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring Christ to those who were under the law. 
When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. The Apostle Paul understood the concept of treating people as they want to be treated. So he became like them, he learned them, he understood them so that he could bless them. He didn't come in with all of his knowledge and all of his training and all of his wisdom and all of his power and just say whatever he wanted to them in hopes that they would receive it. He got to know them, he acted like them, he thought like them, he assimilated with them. Now he did not, as it says, he did not ignore the law of God. He did not see it in this assimilation. But he learned this is how they want to be treated, so let me treat them this way because that will draw them to God. All of your actions, all of your hopes, all of your aspirations in sharing Jesus with somebody, if they don't receive it or appreciate it, they're never coming to Christ. No matter how much you coerce them, even if they do say yes, it won't be long-lasting, deep, meaningful faith. That means that every time we share the gospel, every new church we plant, it has to be relevant to the people we're reaching. Contextualization is important because every context is different. If we're going to share the gospel or plant a church, we're going to a setting or to a person. That setting or that person has been formed by certain circumstances. If you have siblings, how many of you have siblings? I assume many of us have siblings. You have brothers, you have sisters, you have people that you grew up with. You grew up in the same home. Most of you grew up with your siblings, with your brothers and sisters. Same home, same parents, same town. Same DNA. But each of you were formed differently because you had different friends, different generations, different media, different inputs, different things made you different. So if my brothers and I were all in a room and none of us knew Jesus, you would not share Jesus with us exactly the same way because we're three unique individuals. So we can't just memorize tools or skills for sharing the gospel. We can't just memorize the four spiritual laws and assume that's going to fix everything because I may not respond to the four spiritual laws. You may need to love me well in a way that's going to be meaningful for me to come to Christ. Every time you share the gospel, every plant, every time you plant a church in a new community, it's unique. Even if you go 200 kilometers from here, you're finding yourself in a new community. Maybe a new people group, maybe a new language, maybe a generational gap where it's a whole bunch of 18, 16 year olds and you're in your 30s. That is a gap. And if you try and present the gospel to those teenagers in a way that you would want to as a 30 year old, you're in big trouble. That's the biggest problem with the church in Africa right now is we're not reaching the youth because all of us are 50 and 40 years old and we have no idea how to do it. We've not spent the time learning them, asking them questions, allowing them to ask us questions so that we can understand where they're coming from so that we can contextualize the gospel in a way that they'll receive it. We've just stood up here waving our finger, do this, do this, do this, believe this, believe this or you're going to hell. The 18-year-old goes onto YouTube and listens to somebody else who feels, seems like cares about them more than the pastor who says that he loves them. 
contextualization is understanding that our movement is taking us to new settings and all of them have been formed by unique circumstances. Because a movement is not mass producing something that's mechanic. I can use something as easy as a pen. I don't really know how a pen works, but someone could teach me. They could show me how to make a pen. They could show me how to mass produce a pen. And I could just start giving pens away to everybody and everybody say, I have a movement of pens. But some people need a pencil. Some people need a crayon or a colored pencil or a marker. They don't need a pen. A pen doesn't do them any good. Maybe they're an artist. Maybe they're an architect and they need to sometimes erase some of their lines. Pens aren't going to save the world. A movement is reproducing an organic element, an organic material, like a rabbit. If someone starts teaching me or, or telling me how to take a rabbit apart, I'll never be able to put it back together. Because once a rabbit comes apart, it's dead. I feel like that missed some of you. We're reproducing people and we're reproducing organic organisms called the church. Everyone is different. Everyone is unique. And we have to give them what they need, not what they think they need, what, not what they want, but what they actually need. Which means we have to listen. That's what a movement is. It's reproducing, which God says is a mystery we can never understand. Only God can reproduce and every living thing is unique and different. And we need to treat it as unique and different. Just think about the Gospels. The four Gospels are all written differently, isn't it? Even if you haven't gone to seminary, someone has told you because you, or you've just read them. They are not word for word the same thing. Matthew is directed to a certain group of people. Mark is directed to a certain group of people. John, Luke, all directed to a certain group of people answering questions that those groups of people are asking. The Jews needed genealogy, so Matthew put it at the beginning. The Gentiles didn't understand Jewish customs, so Mark explained it to them. They were designed to approach a people in such a way that they would receive it, understand it, and come to know Jesus. So what do your movemental practices look like? Are you mass producing? Because again, movement, it's when it starts getting out of control and the thing to do is try and control it. Once you start planning 10 churches on a Sunday, you're like, this thing's getting out of control. Let's just put everything into a system that people can reproduce. But then you realize these churches, they're not being planted. These churches aren't staying. The salvations aren't coming because you've just tried to give everybody a pen. They don't need a pen. They need a marker. It's a discipleship process. It's a discipleship problem. If you can't disciple me and how to contextualize, I'll never know. So I'll watch you do what you do without the knowledge of why you're doing what you do. That's why discipleship is life on life. It's not a class. It's very hard to teach someone how to contextualize in a class if you're not doing it practically. You need the information and you need the experience. That's why movements are so hard. Because we want to keep control, we want to keep bureaucracy, we want to keep and just give people a plan. So when they come to you with a question, you say, well, according to Article 49, Chapter 7, Page 2, 
This is the thing you're supposed to do in this circumstance. Didn't you read the manual? Because that's easier than telling them, oh, what did the person say? What do you think they actually meant? Where were you doing this meeting? How long have you been meeting with them for? Do they have a family? Were you sharing a meal together? What was happening? And then trying to answer their question about what the person needs is much more challenging than read Article 79, paragraph 3 on page 5. We want the control because it's easier, but that's not going to get us to movement. It's meeting people's needs. It's meeting communities' needs that's going to get us to movement. Are we together? Are we sure? What is God's desire for the church? What is his desire for the church? It's the mission, it's movement, and then being contextually relevant. Let me give you just a couple quick examples. Let's say that in your church, to be a church, you have to have a building, but you, you want to be a movement. But you say, without a building, you're not a church. And then you plant in Tunisia, where it's highly Islamic, and if you have a church building, you'll be killed. Do you tell the missionaries that you've sent there who have 10 Muslim converts that they're not a church because they don't have a building? What if you say, if you don't read the Bible every day, you're not a Christian? But then you send somebody to very deep interior Papua New Guinea where they don't read and write. There's no literacy. But they want to follow Jesus and you're able to orally talk to them about Christ. Are you going to tell them they're not Christians because they can't read the Bible? Or maybe the Bible's not yet in their language. Are you going to tell them you can't be a believer because you don't have the ability to read scripture? Or maybe you go to Germany. And you, you're a good African, and, and pubs are demonic. You cross the threshold of a pub, and you've sinned against God. And so go to Germany, where they drink beer for, beer for lunch, for dinner. And it's no problem, a liter of it. I actually went to Germany. Let me just, since we're being contextually relevant. I said, can I just have a little beer? I don't want your full mug. They said, only women drink half a liter. Here's your liter. I was trying to be contextually relevant and connect with the people. I said, can I just have a small one? Only women drink half a liter. Here's your liter. So now you're in a place where the Germans don't want to come to church. And they don't want to come to your home because you're a pastor. But they say, pastor, if you meet me in the pub, we can talk about Jesus. Bring your Bible. What are you going to do? Are you going to leave the lost to their demonic pubs or are you going to cross that threshold enough to be able to share the gospel even though you're inside a pub? What will you do? Let's go back to Muslim-dominated areas. Let's say that you, you tell people here, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you must leave your, all of your old religious practices behind, all of them. But this new Muslim convert says, but if I stop going to prayer five times a day, I won't be able to reach my brothers and sisters who are still Muslims, so please let me go, pray to Jesus, and be around the other Muslims so I can bring some of them to Christ. As opposed to saying you can never go to prayer again. 
just become a part of the church, now they're only a part of the church and you've cut them off from the relationships outside of the church. What you think is your church is locally relevant, but it won't be relevant in the places you're going to. If you want to be a movement, God is going to take you to places you're going to be contextually relevant. You're going to have to think about your practices. So here's a few questions you can ask about your missional activity, about your movemental, contextual church planting. Who are we trying to reach? Who is the people group, the demographic, the tribe that we're trying to reach? Because if you know who they are, you can study them. And not just study them, you can be friends with them. You may say, I want to reach the Kikuyu tribe in Uthiru from this street to this street. Uthiru is where I stay. Kikuyu is what they think my wife is. But you've defined a location with a people group in a space. Now I can start getting to know the Kikuyu from that road to this road in that area and I can begin to figure out what are their needs. What are their wants. If you just say, oh, I'm going to London. Do you know there's 10 million plus people in London? And do you know that London is one of the most diverse cities in the entire world? Who in London are you going to reach? Are you going to reach the Ugandans in London? Are you going to reach the Nigerians in London? Are you going to reach the Ukrainians in London? Are you going to reach the English in London? And the white English or the Kikuyus again? Who are you trying to reach? If you don't know, you can't study them, you can't learn them, you can't contextually relativize the gospel for them. Question number two, what's the appropriate contextualization for these people? So who are we reaching? How will we reach them? Based on what we've learned from studying them, based on what we've learned from asking questions, based on what we've learned by living among them, that's why the incarnation is so important. That's why Jesus had to come to earth and spend 30 years to learn how humans think, eat, act, operate. He already knew, but he had to experience it. He could have dropped in on Pontius Pilate at 33 and said, it's me. But he had to incarnate. He had to become incarnate, live among us, dwell in flesh and dwell among us so he could watch us and observe us and become us and understand us. And 30 years later, he's finally, I'm ready to begin to minister to these people because I know them. So who are the people and how will we appropriately contextualize the gospel to them? How will we wrap it? How will we package it so that it's meaningful? That comes with time. And the bigger the gap between your culture and their culture, the longer the time it takes. It took me seven months in my first year of Nairobi before I said to my pastor, I think I'm finally ready to meaningfully engage with Kenyans. Seven months just to have a meaningful conversation, not to witness, not to be friends, just to interact with them in a way that I felt like was meaningful. Because as a white American from the place I came from, I didn't know the government, I didn't know the sports, I didn't know you shouldn't talk about the weather because the weather's always the same, nobody cares. I didn't know. In my country, every day you wake up, you talk about the weather because it's always going to be something different. I found I couldn't even see the weather channel, let alone talk about the weather. (laughs) 
I also didn't know that your geese don't fly. I'm giving, I'm giving examples of geese flying south because in my country the geese fly from the north to the south and you're all sitting here wondering, what, geese fly? Seven months just before I felt like I could communicate well with somebody in Kenya because our cultures were so drastically different. The problem in Africa that we have is that we think we're too much alike because we're all black. We almost all, there's an English and then there's a French. So if you're from the English side, you think we're speaking English, dressing very similar. We're all black. We're all African. We just know each other, but you don't. Ask anyone who has gone to another nation for more than six months and they'll tell you amazing stories about how different we are. I've traveled to 24 African nations. You are extremely different and it's amazing and beautiful. But don't confuse what looks like being the same to what's very deeply different in your culture. So the last thing. When you enter into a new space, whether it's 20 minutes down the road or 20 hours flight away, four things to ask. About the culture. What needs to be introduced? You want to you have a kingdom culture in the new space, so you need to introduce things that are absent. What needs to be introduced into this culture? What's missing that's godly? Now make sure you're not using your own tradition. Make sure it is godly and biblical because sometimes we use our traditions and force them on people. What needs to be introduced? What needs to be rejected? What is just sin and needs to be rejected? This isn't good. What do they need to stop? Again, making sure your culture, you're not going to tell all of Germany to stop drinking beer. Let me tell you. So don't tell the Germans that they should reject alcohol. That's a cultural sin that you shouldn't impose on other people. What needs to be affirmed? This is a good thing you're doing. Keep it up. And then what needs to be redeemed or refined? It's a good thing, but we need to fix it. Like marriages in America, they're falling apart. Don't get rid of it. Refine it. So for the last time, what is God's desire for the church? What is God's desire for the church? From the mission to movement to meaningful engagement. We need to love God enough that we understand his mission, that we seek out that understanding. We need to then obediently work to accomplish the mission through movement and do so in a manner that is loving towards all people. It's easy, it's simple in, the, in concept. Hopefully the next few days will help you to get to where you can action it out and have practices and principles that will take you there. Thank you. God bless you. for listening to this teaching. We hope that you've been blessed by the Worship Harvest Sermon Series. For more teachings and other resources, visit www.worshipharvest.org or call 0393-281-555. That is 0393-281-555.